Hi, this is Ann Hill from Dream Talk Radio, and today I have a whole panel of guests. Um, we are discussing a new book. It's actually the first in a, a two-volume series called Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness in Sleep. And uh, this volume is edited by Ryan Hurd and Kelly Bulkley, who are joining us today. And the volume has to do with uh, science, psychology, and education. So welcome. Let's see. Um, let's go. I'll just go to my left. Ryan, welcome. Hey, Anne. Thanks for having me today, and thanks for putting this call together. This is a, a, great, a great group of, of folks. And, uh, and, and, and I hope we do it several times because there's so much we could cover. I, I think that's right. I mean, only, uh, you know, four people can join us out of several contributors to this volume. And, and it was kind of an arbitrary uh, time to see if, if we could pull this hang off, um, hangout off. So I guess my first question is, how did this project get started? Who had the idea and how did you connect with the publisher around it? Well, the the idea started um, with me probably about five years ago. Uh, I really wanted to see an uh, anthology, uh, a modern anthology on lucid dreaming, because it hasn't been done in a, in a scholarly perspective just on lucid dreaming since the 1980s with Stephen LaBerge and Jane Beckenbach's Conscious Mind, Sleeping Brain, and that was literally 30 years ago. And, and so, but I, in particular, um, there's been a great growth around all of the cultural and, and spiritual and applied uses of lucid dreaming that have really kind of come into fruition. And I really wanted to have a volume that kind of showed that interdisciplinary, you know, nature. Uh, and so, and so uh, Kelly got very enthusiastic with the project with me, and we went through, and, and uh, Prager showed up. As, as a publisher, and they said, hey, I've got an idea. Uh, how about you make it into a two-volume set rather than just one volume, and, and that way you can just really cover a lot of material and have, have a lot of people. And so we did, and, and, and in the end, you know, that's 30 different chapters over a two-volume set going from science to shamanism and everything in between. Uh, so it really uh, kind of is a, a mind-exploding uh, book. <laughs> I can't. It's hard to hold it all, actually. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, do you have anything to add to that? How did you make the decisions to, for instance, for all the contributors and and where to set the boundaries for each uh, volume? Yeah. Well, it it was, you know, as Ryan said. Uh, uh, you know, we had this initial sort of enthusiasm around the idea. Ryan has done so much uh, work in this area already and, and knows so many of the, the key players. So, and as you mentioned, you know, Stephen LaBerge and Jane Gockenbach wrote that wonderful book uh, almost 25 years ago, 30 years ago almost. And it just seemed like, wow, there really is this wonderful opportunity to bring together a lot of people who are doing creative new things, you know, that's that's my big interest is sort of uh, facilitating interdisciplinary dream research. Um, yeah, and then Prager came up with this, um, you know, counter-proposal to us saying, you know, why not do a two-volume thing rather than a one-volume? And I'll confess, my first thought was just 
abject terror. It's like, no, dualism. Like, we have two things now. We have to, like, volume one has to be something, volume two has to be some, you know, it just it just seemed to right away raise issues about how we were going to organize it because it's such a, obviously, a, a wild topic and so many different directions to go on. So, anyway, we ended up roughly divvying up the chapters into two you know, equally balanced sets, but I think we say at several points, you know, it's you know, it's not a hard and fast typology that we're imposing on the field at all. Mm -hmm. you know, on the contrary. Right. So let's just jump right in to some of the content in this volume because I think that'll give people a good idea of really the breadth that you're exploring. And Kelly, I actually want to start with you because you've got the first chapter in the book and it's all about lucid dreaming by the numbers and you talk mm -hmm. about both the demographics of lucid dreamers and um, what we know or what we can um, gauge and measure about the content of lucid dreams. Can you just sort of walk us through who lucid dreams and, and who, who lucid dreams more than anybody else and what do they dream about? Well, I mean, you know, part of part of the research presented in that chapter is building on uh, research from lots of other people. So there's some original material that I uh, uh, bring in there, uh, but I'm also happily confirming things that that that, that other people have um, uh, been working on since the the, the Gockenbach and Laverge book. So, you know, one thing I try to uh, support is the basic idea that, that lucid dreaming is not a rare, uh, unheard of experience. So um, just the fact that, that all sorts of studies have indicated that, you know, 50% or more of the general public, if you ask them, have you ever had a dream where you've been aware that you're dreaming, you know, at least that many people will will say yes, and particularly younger people. So it, I'd say the, the biggest take-home message in some ways from from all that quantitative research is lucid dreaming, you know, is is a more natural tendency of young dreamers. Uh, it's not something that that necessarily gets lost later in age, but it definitely, uh, you know, in demographics, the younger you know mind seems more uh, open to it. And so your your chapter doesn't talk about the why so much, but it it measures what we know from the data we've gathered from reasonably reputable studies. Is that right? What's the kind yeah. of extent of that research at this point? Well, um, you know, one thing that's, that's, that's you know, kind of obvious, I suppose, is that, that, that lucid dreams have a lot of cognition, a lot of thought compared to other dreams. So that's, in, that's the content aspect. The frequency, like I said, biggest, biggest you know, message is younger, younger dreamers have more in terms of the content, uh, you know, and this is like comparing sets of lucid dreams to like Holland Van de Castle type uh, patterns of, you know, quote unquote ordinary uh, dream frequencies. Lucid dreams definitely have a lot of um, uh, thought related words, effort related words, um, and surprisingly uh, less vision related words than, than other dreams. And, and again, I, I try to qualify all this, you know, as 
just the beginnings of research still in this in this area. I mean, we need way more, uh, much much larger data sets to help figure this out. But these are the first inklings of patterns, and I think the low vision is 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 indicative that in lucid dreaming there may be a very different kind of uh, brain configuration that that relies less on the visual imagination and more on metacognitive kinds of processes. I mean, that's not a brand new finding, but it's another way of studying right. that phenomenon. Well, that's really interesting. I'll be looking forward to I'm sure somebody's on that right now, designing <laughs> a study. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear more about that. The, the one thing that jumped out at me, um, aside from just the fascination with, oh, you know, younger people are reporting more lucid dreams, is, is that uh, in later research you talk about the questions separating out uh, control in dreams and awareness in dreams. I think that's really key, uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll hit on this topic again in, in this call, but can you talk a little bit about how um, at what the difference is. Why would that be uh, something that people want to discern in a in a research question? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no one definition, of course, of lucidity. I'm, I'm sure you know everyone else we're going to talk with today. You know, knows a lot about the the multiplicities of lucid dreaming experience, and and a simple way of of distinguishing between you know aspects of lucidity is just asking about awareness you know were you aware you were in a dream and or did you have some volitional control within the dream to influence behavior events and so forth um, and the research I've done and, and other people have done suggest that awareness is much more frequent than control um, you know, maybe twice as frequent, just, just roughly speaking, it seems, in the studies I've seen. And so that just, that's interesting. That means that, 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 that you know, either it's easier to gain awareness or um, it's harder to gain control or control, you know, just that, that, that helps open up the, uh, again, from a more content-oriented perspective, some of these questions of what's going on in the brain-mind system while people are lucid dreaming, and potentially how can you train people, you know, and help mm -hmm. them learn different lucid dreaming abilities. Right, right. Fascinating. Thanks. Um, I think I'll go on, because I, I I'm very confident. No, talk to other people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you Moving on, next, next up is you, Robert, and I'm afraid that I, I muted your mic, and I think you might need to unmute that. I'm not quite sure. Can you? undo the damage I have wrought here. Um. <laughs> oh, now you've muted yourself. Oh, for God's sake. These things. Um, let's see here. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll figure that out in a second. So, uh, Robert Wagner, uh, author of a great book on lucid dreaming, and your article here is called Learning the Depths of Lucid Dreaming and, and what I am uh, really interested in hearing from you. Did I just mute you again? Yeah, so I've unmuted myself. Can you hear me now? I can. Can everybody else hear Robert? Yes. Okay, great. 
Awesome. Thank you, Robert, for hanging in there with this call. So, so I want to, to um, talk to you about a couple things in your in your um, in your article. It seems like a, a summation, a really neat summation of a lot of um, stuff that I think you're really good at explaining. And you start by or by talking about the stumbling blocks that people have to learning lucid dreaming. Can you just sort of briefly talk about why this wouldn't happen to somebody who really wants to have a lucid dream? Yeah. So. Just to tell the viewers, uh, I taught myself how to lucid dream in 1975, five years before the scientific evidence emerged. And so I had a long time to experience lucid dreams by myself and to learn how they work and how they function and, and how one progresses along the path. So I noticed that there were a fair number of stumbling blocks, um, like any lucid dreamer probably knows. If you get too excited, you'll pop out of the lucid dream. If you stare at things for too long in the lucid dream, the lucid dream will probably collapse. And also, your fears will keep you contained or constrained, as well as your limiting beliefs. And so there's a number of stumbling blocks that we all encounter as we go deeper and deeper into lucid dreaming. And it's a very long progression. And in fact, uh, this is my 40th year as a lucid dreamer. Impressive. <laughs> it's really impressive. The other thing that I, I really liked about your uh, your article, you, you kind of talk about this uh, developmental model of this sort of progress, this progression of lucidity. And I mean, it struck me as true just in terms of how I learned about lucid dreaming. Like you can fly, you know, you can you can have money, you can make things go away if you don't like them. And but you talk, that seems like reading your your schema. That's that's kind of like kindergarten. And so maybe can you just sort of talk about those stages or those different um, ways that we uh, that we interact with our dreams in lucid dreams? Right. So um, for me. Lucid dreaming starts out in a very childlike way. You normally spend most of your time playing around, having pleasure, seeking pleasure, and avoiding pain, just much like a little child would do. And, and it's interesting to see that some of the developmental psychologists and others would often talk about, uh, like Piaget did, that children were little philosophers. And you could see that as they went through their developmental stages, how they dealt with explaining things like, how, how the wind occurs, or how a wave's made, and that sort of thing. And so in that first stage of lucid dreaming, you play around a lot, you seek out pleasure, you do all those kind of fun things. But then it occurs to you that to get the most out of this state, you have to learn how to manipulate the state better, and how to move within it and explore it. And so then it becomes this new stage of how do you actually manipulate the dream? Now, a long-term lucid dreamer like me would now say that actually I'm manipulating the mind, not so much the lucid dream. But at that stage, manipulation of movement seems very important. Then you probably leave or come to the most egoic uh, part of the progression, which is where you it's all about power and purpose and primacy the lucid dreamer trying to control things, trying to make everything fit into their model of the universe. And that's a difficult stage because oftentimes the unexpected will happen, there'll be surprises, 
things won't fit your worldview. You might have uh, nightmarish or out-of-control things occur that scare you. And so this is a very difficult phase. And that's when you move to the next stage. Hopefully at this point you won't um, end your lucid dreaming career. And you move to a stage of reflection or re-reflection about what you've been experiencing, reaching out to what I feel is the larger awareness behind the dream. And finally, when you realize that it's all a co-created reality, as is dreaming, it appears, and so does waking reality, you try to go beyond lucid dreaming. And that's when you get to the profound state of what I feel is experiencing awareness and where you get to experience more non-dual states of awareness. Mm -hmm. And you, you also make the point that this is, this is not like, okay, day one, day stage one, you know, day two. Like this is, this is taking you decades, takes most people decades. And my hunch is that that's, that, that's a useful thing because, I mean, we're going to talk about non-dual uh, experience and it, it, it seems to me that having your fingers burned on the stove is, is early on is preferable to accidentally lighting a fire in the middle of the living room <laughs> because you, you don't quite have the experience under your belt to, um, to contain, to contain the, the world or the, uh, you know, to understand what's happening. Do you, is there, how would you frame that? Well, probably one of the concerns that I have in the current reality of the Internet where people learn techniques, oftentimes they might learn advanced techniques when they're either conceptually not ready or they're emotionally not ready for what they're asking. So if you engage the um, larger awareness and ask for a conceptual experience and it starts this conceptual experience begins to happen to you in the lucid dream, it can seem powerful and overwhelming. So uh, I appreciated that I started out uh, before the internet, before even the scientific proof, because that allowed me to develop in a more natural way, uh, I feel. But, but yeah, there, there definitely are concerns as you go deeper and deeper into lucid dreams about how to fit it into your mind and how to work with it. Right, right. Thanks for that. And uh, as we're going deeper and deeper, it's probably time to tap into the Paleolithic uh, dream. And so, uh, Ryan, you have an uh, uh, article in this book, and, and in case people are just tuning in, this is Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives in, on Consciousness in Sleep. And I'm speaking to four of the contributors to Volume 1. And Ryan, talk to me about the Paleolithic mind. Don't tell me I have to stop eating wheat, please. <laughs> Just because uh, I stopped eating wheat doesn't mean I'm trying to take your <laughs> wheat away from you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wrote this chapter about the Paleolithic mind and lucid dreaming, and it's meant to be poetic, really, more than anything, um, in the sense of invoking this you know, this, uh, this idea that we've been lucid dreaming as humans for a really long time, um, you know, longer than it's been scientifically validated, longer actually than Robert's been uh, lucid dreaming. Uh, <laughs> Robert started lucid dreaming the year I was born, so, <laughs> so I can validly say that. And, and actually, you know, before civilization, before, um, before really the Paleolithic people uh, had the same brains that, that we did, 
Um, and they were probably sitting around the campfire having extraordinary experiences, talking about them, and it was affecting their behavior and affecting their society. And so, you know, and I think later what we'll start to see some debates about um, how does this affect, you know, evolutionary psychology? Um, is lucid dreaming something that uh, is actually brought down that was affecting this, is there a benefit to it or is it just something that sort of didn't get in the way enough and it's just been kind of a, a rider uh, for humanity all this time that can be used for, for many purposes. Uh, but the, the main concept of the article really is integrating some of the work that some anthropologists have done looking at extraordinary states of consciousness with all the work that some uh, psychologists have done looking at lucid dreaming and, and kind of squishing them together and saying, look, there's these two really awesome bodies of knowledge, and they come together, and, and, and when you bring them together, you see that we know an awful lot about extraordinary states. Uh, and, and lucid dreaming emerges essentially as sort of one hybrid state uh, of consciousness uh, in a spectrum uh, among many others, including out-of-body experiences and ancestral visions, sleep paralysis visions, uh, and uh, things like that, things of that nature, hyper-real dreams in which we have, you know, the kind of waking style thought, like sharpness of thought, but at the same time really strong emotional um, urges come through and very dynamic visual imagery. Uh, and you bring that together and it's just pow, right? And so this is something that, that we've been working with for a long time. And I think that at certain times in the past, it probably was very uh, influential in terms of charismatic leadership. When you look at, say, healers um, or you know, shaman, I know that term is sort of, some people like that term, some people don't, but the idea of shamanistic techniques, lucid dreaming as a technique for uh, people who were altering their consciousness to bring information to other people, um, teaching other people to do it so they can heal themselves, you know. Um, bringing about these sort of placebo responses, I think it probably had a very big influence on the genesis of, of spirituality and religion, some of these concepts of what is a soul and, and, and what happens after we die because we go to sleep every night and we have this incredible life that's not of this life. Uh, and so it, when you think about stripping away all the modern technology uh, and imagine what that was like, what lucid dreaming was like uh, 10,000 years ago. It puts it in this different kind of perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the term because I feel like it, it um, you know, my suspicion is that all the way back in the, to the dawn of prehistory, it, it's basically, we're turtles all the way down, you know, to paraphrase whatever's that Plato. And, it, you know, humans are humans. Humans have been humans with all of their foibles and quirks and uh, genius moments. Really, I guess we would, you know, if we're talking Paleolithic, okay, sure, let's go back 50,000 years. So I, I, I like the term for that, that, that there's... Th that, um, I mean, the difference now maybe is that all of those quirks and foibles have achieved scale in this way that our, our ancestors hadn't really imagined and that's, that's you know, presenting a, a whole range of problems we call civilization and its discontents. So um, what does setting lucid dreaming in a long-term evolutionary perspective 
uh, do for us in terms of understanding our experience now. And I'm thinking in particular of uh, lucid nightmares, which we, you talk about a lot in your article. Right. Well, you know, there's a couple, a couple of things come to mind, which is, number one, this is a thought experiment, and I honestly don't know. Uh, but something happens, and actually Robert Wagner talks about this as well in, in his first book, about there is, once you get into lucid dreaming and you do it for a while, from a personal perspective, you begin to see that there's a certain way of thinking, a certain way of being that is promoted through lucid dreaming, and essentially, it's, it becomes a sort of respect for the world. You realize the universe is alive. It's dynamic. Um, it's relational. And this is, just, this is just the phenomenology of being in a dream and being in a conscious dream. You have a thought. You're in a dialogue with a dream character. They have uncanny knowledge that, that what you're talking about, but you don't know necessarily what they're thinking about, and yet information is shared and there's many unknowns in terms of like how the, the psyche is constructed um, and yet respect and gratitude and basically just making room for other people to talk in, in lucid dreaming becomes a very important way of being uh, and this is you know it's, it's kind of comes down to the golden rule if I could really just like boil it down uh, in, in a way this is the shamanic perspective in many ways this is animism this is the almost the first religion um, you know if you could say say it that way um, that, that we had as, as humans it's a way of thinking that we still do uh, it's a very appropriate way to do it in a lucid dream and I think when you become a lucid dreamer and you start to respect your dreams I think you wake back up to that way of being and I think you know that there's some hope that you can say oh my gosh I've been dead to the world in so many ways I've been so into me um, you can wake back up and you know and that's a grassroots kind of way of hopefully of um, of getting out of the mess of, of modern civilization. Not exactly a roadmap, but, you know, it's kind of like, in, in terms of lucid nightmares as well, let me just add, you know, it's like when, you're, when your leg falls asleep and it's waking back up, uh, there's pins and needles and there's some pain there. Um, lucid nightmares might be part of that pain. Uh, you kind of come back to awareness of many things that are not right. Um, conflicts within ourselves, but also within society. Um, I think being aware of those conflicts and bringing those conflicts into consciousness is a really important part of lucidity. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. And uh, while we're talking about um, pain and, and pins and needles, um, this is a great time to introduce my last guest, um, Scott Sparrow, who has been hanging out all this time. Welcome, Scott. Hi. Hi. <laughs> So you have you have been uh, doing this for a lot longer than than uh, the rest of us, or at least most of us. I guess that's fair to say. One thing that I really love about your article, I mean, you you so you're kind of going into the philosophy of lucid dreams, and also a little bit about uh, the history in in in, our, in the modern terms. You know, I guess since the 70s, or of how lucid dreaming. Was uh, first came back into popularity, and what the, the basically the two camps were in in terms of uh, how 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 to frame what you can do in lucid dreaming. So can you just walk us through a little bit of that? It's fascinating history. Sure. Um, well, I had my first lucid dream in 1970, and I didn't know what it was. No one, 
uh, as far as I know, written about it or termed it, labeled it. I didn't know that there had been a book already published on it, but I found that later. Um, but in two years, I did a master's thesis on lucid dreaming uh, as an evolutionary process. And the thesis of that was that lucid dreaming was a new state of consciousness, just as the ego had been to the ancient world, perhaps, you know, five to 10,000 years ago, the, the kind of ego as we know it started to emerge somewhat. And, and I thought that the paralleling the two was a useful way of looking at it. Of course, we know that the ego in the real world has is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but also the most damaging thing that we've uh, kind of developed in ourselves. So I thought that lucidity could really um, be the harbinger of both potentials. And I began to look at that as uh, um, both a wonderful potential, but also a downside that could come about if we emphasize too much the idea of control or manipulation. We are, and we think of ourselves as open systems in the world. We certainly interact with people and we, we're not um, so isolated that we, we're not affected by people around us. But when we have our dreams, oddly enough, traditionally, we tend to think of the dream as a, a private experience. And we tend to think of the dreamer as a closed system, even though uh, most of us here, I think, don't buy into that uh, because of all the studies on psi and paranormal experiences, we know that dreams are particularly conducive to having those kinds of experiences. So my chapter really had to do with uh, to what extent should we feel comfortable controlling our dream content? To what extent should we have a respectful attitude toward it because we really don't know its ultimate nature? And I tend to think of dreams as uh, kind of like a bus station where uh, you, know, you meet all kinds of people, some of whom aren't from your hometown. Um, and it's a motley crew, it's very teeming and unpredictable. And if we th think of dreams that way, and the lucid dream in particular that way, then we really should, I think, and I use that word very carefully, because I don't want to come across as, you know, um, you know preach, preaching, but I think that we should have an attitude of not knowing, at least uh, suspending our judgment of what it is we're encountering. We really don't know who these characters are ultimately. Mm -hmm. uh, Fritz Perls might say they're parts of ourselves. Uh, Jung might say they are archetypes or embodiments of archetypes. Freud, uh, you know, posing as our parents. <laughs> but uh, I know that in the lucid state in particular, these individuals, characters in our dreams seem particularly real and autonomous. So the chapter was how do we, how do we reconcile the perspective that we are free, this is our experience, that we should be as creative as we want to be, versus uh, who is it we're encountering and what kind of ethic or what kind of approach do we need to have uh, psychologically so that we don't end up kind of imposing the ego on valid emergent psychological forces within us that Jung might call the complex of the shadow mm -hmm. and others might call actual souls somehow manifesting in our dreams. So I, I develop a developmental continuum which basically says uh, by acknowledging the autonomy of the dream and perhaps the independence of some of the dream characters, we actually allow ourselves to enter into a relationship. Mm -hmm. That a true relationship with the dream really depends on us treating the dream as another. And if we render it as nothing but uh, fantasy or our own self-created content, then there is no true relationship. Uh, true relationship can only occur between reflective and autonomous entities. And I think that uh, by essentially holding out the possibility that the dream is 
partly not ours, that we enter into a relationship with it. Somewhat more humble, somewhat more maybe a little apprehensive at times, uh, but certainly capable of achieving intimacy um, mm -hmm. rather than simply domination or, you know, what, whatever we want to do. So, so entering into a relationship with the dream, does that mean, um, I mean, you can take that on a lot of different levels, right? There's, sure. there's the landscape of the dream, there's the people, I, and I, I'm assuming you're talking about, you know, in particular the characters that we might meet in dreams, but are you also talking about the dream state itself? Yes, and the places, the locales, uh -huh. um, you know, sometimes in a lucid dream or what appears to be an out-of-body experience, which is fairly indistinguishable, I think, philosophically uh, with a lucid dream. You encounter locales and places, other planets. I mean, I went to another planet with five suns recently. You know, how realistic was that? But it seemed so totally realistic and, and vivid. Um, so just as the places may be entire constructions, there may also be other places we, we don't know. And just as a people can be... Uh, partly ourselves, the projection we have onto this amorphous uh, entity versus the actual identity of whatever we're encountering. It could be a, a constantly fluctuating co-created event. So getting back to the lucid nightmares we were talking about briefly with uh, Ryan, you, you have this great phrase in your article um, that transcendence is an insufficient, insufficient solution. So say I, I come across some, uh, like, the worst beast or zombie apocalypse figure or whatever, you know, that I've ever had in a, yeah. in a dream. And uh, so there's, there's a couple different schools of thought, right? One is, oh, I'll just zap it with my laser gun that I just materialized in my hand and sort of transcend it. And the other, the other school of thought might be, well, I should, you know, ask it what it's here for I mean wh where how how do you how do you look at a, a conflict like that when you were in a lucid dream and we have that split second you know fight flight freeze or maybe think of a question to ask it like where do you go to to not just go into some sort of uh, escape or transcend mode right well first of all I think the dream the lucid dream is self-correcting so uh, correcting of us so if we do something that may be a dismissive of something that needs our attention rather than our, you know, power, you know, it'll come back and, and we'll get feedback. But what I, what I really ask is, where are you in your life? If you have an encounter with a monster or would-be rapist or, you know, somebody with a gun, the question I have is, what, is it, what do you need right now? What, developmentally speaking, is most, more important for you to make that go away or to dis to gain some control or is it more important for you to reconcile and heal or some kind of relationship with it usually it's both are necessary but we may be at different places based on our experience I have a lot of clients who've been traumatized right. and if they try to make peace with their zombies before they've really found their own personal power it would be what I call early holy hmm. they they try to make friends and it doesn't work it just blows up on them the like me, I tried to dismiss a, this a violent character in my dream by telling him he was a dream and just laughed. And he, he pulled a knife and he said, I'm going to show you my new knife. So I had to fight him. And it was appropriate because then I was not 
powerful enough in myself and the world to uh, to do that kind of thing and get away with it. So basically, we uh, I fought him, defeated him, and another dream later, he just said to me, "I only wanted your love. I only want your love." But I I couldn't have done that in the first step. It would have been early holy. So a lot of my clients are at various stages of their own developmental process, and some need to you know, shoot the guy back, and sometimes they need to ask him, you know, what do you want? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's one answer. It's more of a developmental process. That's great. Thanks. I really like that, early holy. That's a great phrase. <laughs> Did everybody write that down? <laughs> a client of mine invented that so years ago. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's very descriptive. It's very descriptive for how, you know, you know, a lot of our introduction to philosophy is wanting to go into, you know, quickly go into non-dual states of, of being and perception without, uh, maybe without the, you know, the development of our ego that needs to take place first. Um, quick question for each of you and just pop in if you have uh, something to share. I, I, I'm sort of getting into to uh, asking all of my um, interviewees this question because I, I feel like in our culture right now we're talking about scaling our quirks um, you know and, and Scott you mentioned trauma and, and I think trauma PTSD is is one of the most serious problems that faces our our civilization as human beings right now and I guess my question to each of you is what do you, uh, you know, an insight, a piece of advice, a ray of hope, where do you see your own understanding of dreams and in particular lucid dreams being able to um, affect that in some positive way? And just anybody speak up and I'll put you on camera. I'll speak. <clears throat> Uh, one of the one of the perspectives I've been playing around with is looking at at nightmares, some nightmares as initiation experiences. Uh, and part of I think the work as individuals and as teachers and educators um, is is holding the space so we can go through a proper initiation um, into adulthood, which is something that our society has really lost. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's a violent time, but it's been a, we were a violent species and we've been violent pretty much the entire time. Um, but most societies have ways of cooling off their warriors when they come back and reintegrating them into society, and our culture does not do that. That is why PTSD and nightmares is really blowing up, I think, um, especially on American soil. We just don't have a system that takes care of takes care of these men. Um, and so I'm really um, delighted to see that there's therapists who are working with PTSD nightmares with veterans um, because these are veterans who are brave enough to, to work with their dreams um, and, and they're actually finding healing by facing, rescripting, um, whatever, you know, there's, like Scott said, uh, there's not one way of dealing with nightmares or uh, dealing with trauma, but working with the, the material and going through and finishing and completing that initiation with the elders, with the society, you know, right there helping them. And, and that's, you know, I think lucid dreaming can be a, a part of this, a part of this uh, cooling down process. Mm. Great. Thanks for that. Anyone else? Uh, sure. Great. 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'd, I would put it more um, simply, maybe, just in terms of the, I think, the expanded public awareness that, that a project like this, you know, is hopefully fostering, and the work of Scott and Robert and Ryan certainly have been promoting in all sorts of ways, just the general awareness that these possibilities of awareness and consciousness and exploration are possible in dreaming, you know, I think we've probably all seen it, that simply letting someone know it is possible seems to give permission to their minds to have lucid dream experiences. That's that's powerful. And, and you know, I think that the more, and I don't want to say normalized lucid dreaming, but, but, but give people a sense that this is part of the heritage of being a human being, of having the kind of minds and bodies we have. And to me, I put, you know, most of my, my slender hopes for the future on the human capacity for, you know, amazing creativity and adaptability in the face of unusual circumstances. Our species is really good at that. Maybe that's why we get ourselves into real pickles, because we seem to enjoy getting ourselves out of them. I don't know. But, but you know, I think that lucid dreaming and the awareness of lucid dreaming definitely plays a role in enhancing that species-wide capacity that maybe will help us out. Great. Thanks, Robert. I see you yeah. saying something. I'll lean forward. You know, uh, for the practical lucid dreamer out there, uh, one thing that I encourage in both of my books is that they always go to the area of the most sensed emotion or energy in their lucid dream. That's something that I learned relatively early on, that if I was going to resolve anything or learn anything or engage anything, instead of flying away from it or running away from it or turning my back on it, I had to go to the area of the most sensed energy and emotion and see what was there and, if possible, resolve it or learn something by virtue of having done that. And I think if you take that as a general rule in the lucid dreaming, you'll naturally mature in a thoughtful way. Because in my sense of lucid dreaming, the larger awareness, this awareness behind the dream that you can engage, is bringing things to you with the hope that it will be resolved with the hope that you will respond in an appropriate way, in a thoughtful, creative, adaptive way, and and resolve the issue internally so you can move on. That's why I think people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and who have recurring nightmares, often when they become lucidly aware just once, the nightmares cease. And so it's like the larger awareness has seen, okay, finally, you've responded in an acceptable way that will allow the nightmares to, in a sense, be resolved. It's kind of like some computer form that keeps keeping you on that one page and won't let you go beyond it because you haven't responded correctly. And once you respond in a thoughtful way, it lets you free from that nightmare. Mm -hmm. but, but there are ways of approaching this, and it's, all these issues are, are actually very deep. But like Kelly, I feel that lucid dreams really do represent a possible shift, a way of allowing us to access inner creativity and really make a quantum leap forward in our understanding of consciousness by virtue of understanding the foundation of this subconsciousness upon which consciousness rests. Hmm. Yeah, nice. Thank you for that, Robert. 
Scott, do you have anything else to add to this? In particular about uh, trauma, I work a lot with uh, people who have been traumatized, either sexual abuse or war, um, and um, very few of them are ready to become lucid in their dreams. Most of them don't recall their dreams very much. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with fairly unsophisticated, unsophisticated clients. However, uh, what I do is I use dream work a lot with them using the principles of lucid dreaming specifically to get them to re-engage just as gestalt therapy does. The idea in trauma treatment, most trauma treatment that we know of that works involves some degree of exposure or re-exposure mm -hmm. to uh, the trauma. So if we have a nightmare and if we can get clients or people to see the value of re-engaging the nightmare, and I call that dream reliving. Some people call it dream re-entry uh, when they actually do it. But what I have people do in my office is to imagine themselves reliving the dream and responding in a lucid way, even though they may have never had a lucid dream. Mm -hmm. Effectively what they're doing right there in that moment is re-engaging the source of distress, practicing new responses and imagination and maybe talking about it. And I see that as not only a preparation for becoming lucid, many of them do become lucid afterwards, but even if they don't, they're resolving some of this conflict just by imagining the reliving of the dream, the re-exposure to it. So I don't, I've always thought that dream work didn't really have to bring into it lucid dream induction per se, as long as clients who are suffering from trauma are willing to re-engage these kind of painful dreams. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, all of your thoughts on, uh, on that subject, but also on lucid dreaming in general. And um, I've kept you all on the phone for quite a while, or on the, on the computer, I guess. So I'm gonna, I'm, I will let you go really quickly, but I want to um, mention that we are going to do a second one of these. And, and maybe we should just do a rolling series. But anyway, at this point, it's just conceived as a, a second uh, hangout in the series to talk about volume two of Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness and Sleep. Volume two uh, has to do with religion, creativity, and culture. So I'm really looking forward to that already. I have no idea which contributors to that volume will be able to speak to us. but Man, that's going to be a fun one. So thank you so much, Ryan Hurd, Kelly Bulkley, Scott Sparrow, and Robert Wagner. This has really been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Anne. You bet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dream Talk Radio. I'm Anne Hill, and you can find all of my podcasts at dreamtalkradio.net. If you like what you just heard, please let others know and leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to know in advance who I'll be interviewing next, you can find out on the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.